Hello and welcome back to Core Ideas, a podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. Uh, as always, we are hosts, myself, Adam Jezurski, and my good friend, Josh Steenpont. Hey, how's it going? And today we are uh, doing something a little bit novel. We're doing a part two. Yeah, we've never done this before. We've never continued on with a topic. Uh, we've we've had threads of topics, but this one is is just, we left off on the last episode, episode uh, 19, and here we are in episode 20 as well. So that's cool. It's uh, a milestone. Yeah. And... You know, it's been with the uh, bit of a Labor Day break, the start of a new school semester. Do you even remember what we were talking about last time? Uh, I do. I think it was about the history of paleolimnology, and I'm pretty sure you dropped the first F-bomb on the Core Ideas podcast as well. So that's uh, <laughs> that's no how I remember what it that. was. No? No, it's okay. Uh, it's our show, and <laughs> it's a podcast, so that's kind of expected. Uh, but yes, no, we, it has been a couple of weeks. Uh, you may hear them without much more than our normal two week break. Um, but it has been a few weeks since we recorded the first part, but I'm excited to get back into it where, uh, but I, so I guess for our own sake, if not for our listeners, we should start with a bit of a recap as to, uh, what we talked about in the first part before we move on. Yeah. And so, um, before getting into the history of paleontology, we kind of had to like define a starting point, which proved quite difficult, especially when working backwards, um, as using this, you know, the, uh, release date of the first issue of JOPL was not particularly good because that was only in 1988. Um, same thing with the various, uh, uh, dedicated paleo meetings. So we rolled it all the way back to, okay, talking about the foundations of modern science and the Renaissance, which were the key threads or the giants whose shoulders would be stood upon um, going forward. And we made reference to beginning with Galileo, but the fathers, of, and notably they were all fathers, uh, just from the time periods we're talking about in the 16 and 17 and 1800s, but of microbiology, taxonomy, chemistry, um, evolution, geology, um, all the way up to modern ecology. And we left off with uh, Hutchinson as uh, treatise on limnology in 1957. So building up all of the bits that are necessary in order to make a science like paleolimnology, you can't have paleolimnology before those. So we had to see where all of that started. And I thought it was an interesting little, uh, little weaving through quite a, a long time period of all these different sciences and then seeing how quickly they all kind of came together towards the end of the uh, 19th century into the start of the 20th century in order to really kind of get us into people studying lakes uh, generally the the origins of limnology uh, and then not too long after that we finished with sort of the idea of aquatic ecology and freshwater uh, ecosystems and uh, and then I think we're going to see in, as we move forward that uh, this is where people start to dig into the mud a little bit and, and start to work with that. Um, but uh, before we get there, one observation that I had as I was like thinking about the list that we put together last one is uh, in those foundational figures in part one, it's kind of interesting how at the start of the list, um, you know, we're still, it's like hobbyist is the wrong word, but uh you know, they weren't all necessarily professional scientists. It's like similar to like when you talk about, um, you know, Mendelian genetics, you know, Mendel was not a geneticist. He was a, uh, he was a, uh, a monk, I believe. Yeah. And, and, uh, was, and an amateur gardener. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, it was his hobby of investigating, um, what was it? Peas? Peas. Yep. Him. Um, and so in the same vein, uh, uh, you know, for example, uh, Lee Hook's interest in lenses was not born of his professional career in microbiology. It was born out of his drapery business and yeah. wanting to build better and better lenses to look at the fabrics he was working with and mm -hmm. then just turn them onto something else. And then lo and behold, oh, it's kind of neat. 
yeah no one remembers the draperies and uh <laughs> and that part of the uh the history yeah it is interesting that uh you know in the biology re realm if we're thinking about evolution and and other those types of uh components you know they were naturalists they were just out looking at the world around them uh it was really observational science and and being open to expanding upon what they saw and seeing it in different ways and applying it to different ideas but no it was definitely not professional science in the way we think of academia and university professors and that kind of thing um, um, one other big one that we a notable omission from our list of last time that would fit into that category would be uh, um seki as oh in, yes and the, uh uh the root of the you know iconic seki disc mm -hmm. uh, and again um he was he a cardinal uh just a friar i'm not uh i'm not sure if he was so high up he certainly worked in the vatican i don't know that he was uh that high up in the in the hierarchy of the uh, catholic church but but certainly a catholic priest and you know the secchi disc again was uh hobby driven from um dropping colored plates off the side of the uh um of the papal yacht in order to uh um, get some measure of water clarity in different parts of wherever the papal yacht was sailing, I guess. Somewhere around Rome, probably. Yeah. Uh, but also, if I'm not mistaken, Secchi had uh, many other interests and talents and, and is as well known for his astronomy as he is for uh, water clarity measurements. So uh, a good example of not being limited to a single box of these uh, side ideas that they were interested in and lots of different parts of natural history generally so it's just kind of a neat thing when you look into the uh you know the history of science in general i guess of you know how these were clergymen and nobility and you know while they people were investigating to, the age of the earth the peasants yeah, people who didn't have sure. to farm for their living they, no, they, they had, they, they had time and energy and money to uh do these things yeah so I could use some peasants. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Be great for my publication record. I'll just, yeah, exactly. I'll just go and uh, get on a ship and sail around the world and s document the things that I see. If no, if there's no concern about paying the bills. Yeah. But that kind of draws to an end by the end of our list from last time. So uh, by the time we get into like the late 1800s, we're talking exclusively about university professors and academics. Albeit, some of them may have been doing their field work uh, in the Victorian, late Victorian era in three-piece suits, but they were professors nonetheless. As one would, yes. I got to get back to that. <laughs> what? Field work or three-piece suits or Both. combo? Yeah. The the wool of a nice suit is just perfect, you know, in, in the field. It uh, uh, is the perfect material for it. So. All right. Let's continue then. That is a good recap of where we were last time. And uh, now we're going to move into, I guess, it's not uh, since uh, Hutchinson and, and that, type, that time period. We're going to go back a little bit, uh, but focus in on people who we, we could fairly easily call the first paleolimnologists and start to think about people who were doing all of these things kind of together in some ways, uh, and studying lake sediments specifically. So all these people we've talked about before have been studying processes that are important in paleolimnology and contribute to paleolimnology, but not really studying sediments themselves for the history of the lake. And now we're going to get into people who have been doing that. The first uh, paleolimnologists, even if they may not have uh, identified themselves as such or came before that time. Or recognize the term necessarily. Mm-hmm. So um, the first person on, that we're looking at today would be Baron Gerard de Geer, who uh, pioneered the study of uh, glacial varves and coined the term geochronology. And so this would have been being done uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and I found a, the, a neat quote that he opened one of his classic lectures with um, that uh, the, the name of the talk he gave was a geochronology of the last 12,000 years. 
And the opening line of his lecture was, geology is the history of the earth, but there too, it has been a history without years. And that's like a, a pretty bold kind of opening of like, you know, listen up, brought to turn things on its head a little bit here. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that's a, that's a provocative way to start a, a talk. Um, but perhaps not wrong, you know, I mean, without having the idea of putting a time frame to uh, the geology that you're studying, uh, that, that that's quite challenging to really put it into the, the accurate context. Uh, and, you know, without geochronology, without being able to date uh, sediment layers or strata in general, uh, it's hard to imagine doing paleolimnology as we see it. So that's a really important contribution and quite an early one right around the uh, the turn of 1900. Yeah. And we've talked before on the podcast about what barbs are. So I don't think we need to do too much in it, but we're talking about like annual laminations that form in sediments. So you can actually count back if you had a sediment core, count back uh, annually through time. Yeah. And they don't have to be in, in like current lake sediments. You can find varved records, you know, in, in the strata and exposed lake beds uh, all over the place. And probably where he was studying though. I don't imagine he was taking sediment cores. He was probably looking at exposures of drained lakes or former lakes uh, because there's such a long history of glaciation in many locations, including in um, Sweden. So he was studying uh, moraine systems, I think. So it would have been, you know, glacial tills and things like that are being moved by the glaciers. And those would have contributed when glaciers were melting and, you know, as they do uh, on an annual basis would have been producing these varved uh, couplets. Yeah. And so um, I was kind of, kind of getting at that, that that's how we think of varves today in terms of a lake core, but we're well before the first lake core per se at this point, but the pioneer, this is, you know, we're 120 years now past uh, the importance of varves of annual laminations being discovered publicized, published, I'm not sure exactly what the best ways to frame it would be. But I think, uh, yeah, and also with geochronology, like that's uh, a word in common use today in paleolimnology. Okay, so then the next person on our list is Wilmot Bradley. And uh, a little bit later, so we're looking at, uh, I guess, a key element of his work would have been uh, published in the 1920s, but like the first geolo geolo geologic focused paper looking specifically at lake deposits. So now we're getting more and more into something recognizably paleolimnological. Definitely. Uh, and he is best known for his work in the Green River Formation, uh, which is an exposed uh, record. It's not a current lake. But it is a lake record in sort of sedimentary uh, deposits. I believe it is Eocene in age, so six million years-ish, uh, moving forward from there in the north and west, it was kind of central northwestern part of the United States. So in Wyoming, Colorado, uh, the Uinta Mountain area is all part of that formation uh, and just a huge deposit of former lake sediments, but that's loaded with uh, micro fossils and things like that, that were uh, freshwater as opposed to being marine where we would have had some of these previous marine uh, systems. So a really interesting sort of example of the way in which you can look at exposure in, uh, in a paleo context and really look at paleo lake beds and uh, that are just on the sides of mountains, uh, through rock cuts and all those different areas. And, uh, that's an absolutely famous, uh, location, a uh, location for continued work on some interesting, uh, kind of Cenozoic, uh, through to modern, uh, geological formations. Okay. We're skipping along at a fairly rapid pace here, but next stop on our list is Winifred, uh, Tooten. Um, uh, Nee Pennington. So her PhD was published as under the name Winifred Pennington before she got married. And uh, at this point, we have 
a potential candidate for a first real recognizable paleolimnologist. So um, just to, you know, provide some context, her PhD in 1941 was titled uh, An Investigation of Some Problems of Freshwater Algae with Special Reference to the Process of Sedimentation. So now we're looking very specifically at uh, algae um, in the sediments and uh, uh, a paper from, from, I'm not sure it was actually one from her PhD or a PhD work contributed to. Uh, it was a nature paper from, ni- uh, pretty sure it's 1941, um, study of lake deposits. And then one of the opening sentences in there is, in the initial stages of this work, one of us obtained cores with a simple steel pipe operated from a boat and driven in by a ramming weight. These cores show the zonation of laminated clays and organic layers indicated in core A32, and the diatoms examined by WP exhibited an interesting succession. Yeah, that's paleolimnology. Like, you know. <laughs> she absolutely is a paleolimnologist. So, uh, and and yeah, I mean, there may not be, there may be others uh, slightly before that or whatever, but I don't, I'm not aware of their names. Uh, you know, if your PhD is on something that is demonstrably paleolimnological, I think that you uh, are very, a very strong candidate for sure for that title. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's some really, you know, that uh, sentence might be written slightly differently than you might see it now, but could easily be pulled out of papers written now. Um, just the same as, uh, I don't think you could write a nature paper called the study of lake deposits currently, but, uh, the topic isn't, isn't the issue. It's just that there's other people doing the same thing. So I think that's, that's, you know, some good, uh, material there, particularly for 1941, her, her degree and, uh, and the, you know, she became a very important figure in the Freshwater Biological Association. So this work was done in the English Lake District, um, um, I believe, up in the Lake Windermere area, um, which I have visited many, many years ago. Um, yeah, but, I've never uh, been there. It's definitely on my list of places to see. Yeah. I always find this a uh, very crazy thing to imagine because uh, um, within my own family, uh, you know, World War II was a major, major um, defining force of everything um, I would, and in terms of displacement and movements and just the idea of, you know, collecting diatom cores during the Blitz seems like cr- crazy to me on, on, a, on a bunch of levels. That's yeah. But science continues. I, mean, I guess so. And here we are. And here we are. Yeah, no, that that's, um, yeah, that's, that's some interesting stuff. And I, I don't know off the top of my head, I mean, being a, a diatomist, or at least uh, spending a lot of time thinking about diatoms in the past, uh, I'm not really sure when the like the earliest use of sub fossils for diatoms would have been for that kind of reconstruction. There are definitely uh, diatom taxonomic guides that are older than that of people looking at the diversity of diatoms, but to use them for a reconstruction, as that sentence would suggest, so exhibited an interesting succession. Uh, that that seems quite early too for uh, for that sort of. Uh, uh, application of paleolimnology so really some interesting stuff there that's a good sentence out of that paper yeah so i imagine um you know like the majority of the diet well the, the like the fact that it's published in nature speaks to the fact that this was very novel so i guess up until that point you know diet's homework was largely figured focused on extant species and water column collections and water sampling and then here you go in 1941 okay now now we're applying it to a sediment core let's go big yeah or or marine where they would have been looking at like diatomaceous earth um sediment samples which are often used for those like really nice pretty plates um but not going to be particularly useful for reconstructing a lake history all right and then next on our list is uh herb Wright. um and he um, was a foundational uh, figure in establishing the uh, Limnological Research Center associated with the University of Minnesota. And he was one of the inaugural um, recipients of the IPA's Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, so that took place in 
Mexico. Nine. Yep. In Mexico. Um, and has uh, relatively recently passed away since. But he was a major figure on, you know, at this point, we've jumped from, I guess, through his career. So I guess he would have moved to the University of Minnesota in 1947. So um, I think he was a professor somewhere beforehand. But um, but 1947, joined the Department of Geology there. And paleoilimnology is still in a nascent form, I guess, would be one way to describe it. Um, and he made serious contributions to quaternary paleoecology, pollen analyses, landscape history, and those kind of environmental changes over um, tens of to hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Uh, it probably would be challenging when you have such a long career that spanned you know, 50 years at, uh, at uh, University of Minnesota, at least, uh, to not dabble in all sorts of really kind of linked topics. So really important work stretching into the more distant past, the quaternary, but then also pollen is really something and really developing palynology is, is often something associated with Herbright. Uh, and he was just a great trainer of students as well. All of the, the great researchers who have linkages to the LRC uh, and all of the work that they then pioneered often in, in some ways similar to what we'll talk about in a minute with Hutchinson is one of those legacies that, you know, instantly ties you into all these different topics because your work is so much amplified when you have this huge group of students that can take little bits of your knowledge on paleo methods and collecting sediment cores and just understanding landscape change and then push that into their own little envelopes, uh, you know, that, that's the legacy that gets to be left behind by, uh, these, these names that have huge, uh, impact. And I guess, you know, you just alluded to it, but he was on, we ended our list last episode by referring to, uh, George Evelyn Hutchinson and his work, um, developing, I guess, a huge group of, uh, um, ecologists at Yale. Um, and, Basically, we're going to refer to him again because he was pivotal in like the, um, the transformation of many of these scientific approaches from a quali qualitative kind of descriptive kind of sense to um, the application of statistics and mathematical methods to limnology. So then we get more and more into the uh, quantitative aspects of paleomnology that we would uh, recognized today, I guess, in many ways. So I don't think Hutchinson would, we would consider him to be, I don't think he would have considered himself to be a paleolimnologist. I'm not sure anyone talking about that would be, but definitely some important connections again to paleolimnology and the, the, yeah, just exactly what you said, the, um, framework, I guess, that he and his students looked at uh, at all of their studies in from a statistical perspective, from a process perspective. Uh, and again, as I said, I'm talking about Herb Wright, just the prolific um, legacy of all of the students that he had. So yeah, that's that's definitely a, uh, a good place to jump off, I guess, into another whole kind of realm almost. I think in that list there, we've, you know, over the time period of the people we've just covered, we've we've seen paleolimnology sort of emerge as a as a discipline and as you move maybe beyond that as the from these kind of new ideas there's really a blossoming of it in all different locations moving forward and i was thinking here we could highlight maybe some of hutchinson's students that made contributions to paleontology and um you know i guess in some ways our own how our own academic lineage ties to hutchinson yeah most people, are, uh, I want, I assume most people are familiar with the idea of this Hutchinson tree, uh, the, the drawing, I don't remember what it's from. I think it was for either his retirement or a, a later birthday that someone put together this drawing of the Hutchinson tree with all of the students that he trained and all of the students of the students that he trained. And it's massive. I, I couldn't guess how many uh, names are on it. Uh, but like the main branches of the tree have to be 
probably 30 or 40. And I believe it's just PhD students, just people who ended up with doctorates. And it's enormous the number of students that he trained, especially when you get to the end of the tree. And those are all PhD students. They're not, you know, people following on. So, And that, I guess that's one thing um, I can go off the tree. And obviously, even today, you know, the number of people that could produce, you know, a tree of that scale is like vanishingly small um, in terms of being that prolific in terms of that mentor of students. But going back to, you know, when, when the, uh, um, the 40s and 50s, um, it had to be fairly unique at the time. Like, I, I'm, I'm just guessing that, but I can't imagine there would be too many uh, PhD supervisors in the 50s that had dozens of students. Yeah, I, I have it open on my screen, and I just, like, tried to count without getting into really any of the details. And I caught, I made it to 35, and I'm sure I've missed an, half again that that many uh, people. And, and, yeah, that has to be a fairly rare... Uh, component of of that kind of time period you'd think anyway if if others knew of of highly prolific at least sort of in the realm of the the uh geological or biological sciences let us know but uh i've never heard of anyone like that before particularly uh and always interesting to to think about this but hutchinson didn't have a phd himself which is really that's so it couldn't be replicated Oh, no, you Today. can never do that. No, never again. Yeah. Um, but thinking about, you know, we'll talk a little bit about some of the uh, names on there that are paleolimnologists or are linked to paleolimnology. But being a ecologist broadly uh, and just being a, a trainer of students, there are names on here that had no linkage to uh, paleolimnology and uh, but are well known in other parts of science. So uh, Rob MacArthur, who's known for a kind of a biogeography perspective, um, is a, a student of an early student of uh, Hutchinson, and the names go on and on, um, including some people that uh, you know have a, a definite role. Jack Valentine, who's a limnologist more broadly, uh, have a role to play in the continuation of the paleolimnology story. Yeah. So let's talk about um, a few of them, maybe. Jack Valentine just threw it in there. It's instrumental in the um, founding of the Experimental Lakes area, which I guess is something that we'll eventually have to explore in an episode. Um, but there are a couple of other names on there. And honestly, um, it's kind of interesting because thinking about the Hutchinson, um, we're a little bit biased again because of you know, our supervisor's supervisor was a student of Hutchinson. Um, and I, I'm going to plead ignorance to see if there's an equivalent name on the other side of the Atlantic uh, who has made, you know, was making equivalent contributions to uh, ecology or who, who would be an equivalent in that time period. Um, I have no idea. Yeah, there could very well be one. And, and you know, we know of this one just based so, not solely but primarily on the fact that you know that there you know, we could strike our lineage onto here at a very 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 tiny <laughs> oh, well, component I mean, of the tree you know well i guess we are part of his lineage you know so, oh yeah yeah you know if you t take the tree like i mean if you take enough trees far enough back like you know everyone is connected but, yeah uh, we're i guess phd great-grandchildren uh Hutchinson uh yep that's right there you go it would be but a anyway. very dense tree at that point if we got <laughs> yes. to the great-grandchildren oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but but there is uh that connection and and I yeah I don't know if there is someone on the other side of uh the ocean who would have had a similar sort of uh impact you know someone working at the freshwater Biological Association, Lake Windermere. There probably are some big names, and, and maybe it's not one single person, but at that time period, you know, around the time that perhaps uh, Winifred Tootin had students of her own that were very prolific, and that could very well be the case. And we should probably look into that in a, in a future kind of arc, but uh, for yeah, right now, 
We're yeah, exposing we to, our biases right here. Yeah, for sure. And and that's that I think that's fine. Um if we think about the so we've talked about Valentine, we talked about Rob MacArthur, but some other names on the Hutchinson lineage, uh Ed D V is uh one that obviously uh is well known, an early uh student of uh Hutchinson that had a role to play in a number of different areas that would be very paleolimnological, uh, quantitative palynology, uh, isotope chemistry, biogeochemistry, but also uh, population dynamics and the ecology of zooplankton. Like, you, you know, you can find DV's name on papers broadly across the aquatic sciences. Uh, and and that, that's quite a, quite an interesting and, and unique contribution to early paleolimnology. And in also another name, and be my pronunciation is going to be terrible here. Wallace Thomas Edmondson. Um, I think again, he went by by Tom Edmondson primarily. So um, yeah, how how you pronounce his first name, we'll we'll have to just say there was a, a bit of static when we were saying that. <laughs> But I think it's interesting here that um, he spent some time at Lake Windermere and sort of getting some cross-Atlantic pollination going on at this period of time. And his research uh, is foundational looking at the causation effects of eutrophication, um, uh, looking at plankton. Um, so you know, we're now getting into the roots of many of the topics that are still of interest to paleolimnology. Yeah, I wonder how common that was for people to move back and forth. I bet you it was fairly, uh, fairly regular for people to go back and forth between the big research institutes in the UK and uh, and in the United States, like at Yale, uh, well, to it, to do that. It sort of really thing. depends on exactly when it was. Like, there's a big difference between you know uh, transatlantic flight for scientific purposes and I don't know, let's say like. 1951 versus 1965. True. Yeah. Um, but I can't, honestly, I can't imagine it was a huge, it must have been fairly expensive. I don't know. If you think time. about for some other um, disciplines, like in physics, for example, there was a huge amount of back and forth between Scandinavia and the work of, you know, Heisenberg and things like that in Germany and the Brits and the Americans, like there was a lot of people getting on ships and taking long voyages in order to share ideas across, you know, science moved at a bit of a slower pace to share ideas across the ocean. Um, there were obviously maybe less people doing lake sediment based work, but I, I would imagine that the few people that, um, did, I, I don't know, it'd be my guess anyway, that there, there maybe was a little bit more than you would imagine, given how challenging it would have be, been. You can't just hop on a you know, the next uh, flight out of, out of Toronto for, yeah. uh, for London. How long would it, uh, the boat ride from New York to London have taken? Four or five days, probably. Uh, okay. Okay. Lots of time to do your writing and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sit on deck and just take in the sea breeze and or be seasick. BC saying <laughs> if you're locked in your cabin, you can work there to think these deep thoughts about science. Yep. Uh, so we talked about our very vaguely talked about our own connection to the Hutchinson tree, and that's through John Small, obviously, who was a student of uh, goes by Ted, but Seward uh, Brown, who was a Hutchinson uh, student. Uh, a little bit later on, I think, in his career, he's at, sort of up at the top of the tree as opposed to down at the bottom. Um, but also, I mean, that was John's kind of linkage to paleolimnology as a PhD student. Uh, but also on his own was a well-known um, uh, expert and leader in using algal pigments to reconstruct lake sediments. So there's a, a connection there again through the Hutchinson uh, lineage. The next on our list is another uh, uh, recipient of the National Paleolimnology Lifetime Achievement Award, would be Dan Livingston. At the same meeting, who, I think, right? No, uh, the following. Uh, oh, I put it mixed up. I mixed my answer. Was it the same meeting? Was it the I inaugural? Think so. I don't, I'm not sure. I vaguely, uh, he was definitely at Mexico. 
and I don't remember if he got the award there. I think he may have. I think they may have both been in the in that first one. Don't quote me on that. I might be wrong, but uh, that's my vague recollection without any research. Either way, Dan Livingston, uh, another huge name in paleoluminology, one that probably people are who haven't heard any of this kind of backstory uh, might be a little bit more familiar with, just because of the Cora. Exactly, just because of the Cora with his name on it, that he. I'm not designed or certainly modified in order to use that principle. But beyond the core, and obviously when you come up with your own core design, you probably took a lot of cores. You studied paleolimnology in a lot of different locations. Really well known for work in the African uh, rift lake ecosystems, which are obviously really challenging to take sediment cores from, hence uh, having to be a real expert in that topic. And so I guess... You know, that takes us right into like almost like a discussion about the evolution of cores in many ways, or at least, you know, touching on a couple of key ones, because at the same time that you're having um, progression and developments in terms of the ecology, the various linkages of the application of statistical methods to um, the ecological record. Um, you really need to have a parallel development in the collecting of the sediments that are analyzed under the microscope. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of the all of the foundations of paleolimnology are coming together. We've got people studying the biology, we've got the chemistry, all of these things being applied, these sciences that already existed being applied to sediments. And then exactly as you said, we just need to get better at removing the sediments. Working on exposures of rock faces is good and can be uh, really, really interesting. But if we want to study modern systems and see how modern environments are changing, we need to be able to collect modern cores. And uh, Dan Livingston being one example of those, but not the earliest one. And uh, as we've talked about in, what episode did we talk about coring? Four. Episode four. four. We we talked about the act of coring more so so than... um, I guess we did a bit of a review of a couple of different cores, but it's really something we could dedicate a fair bit of time to in depth. Um, and but, and most of them are named after people. So we probably talked about type. Yeah, you're right. We talked about types of cores. So piston cores versus open barrel cores. Uh, within those categories, there are lots of different examples of slight variations, significant variations, and most of them are named after a person <laughs> who came up with the design. And, uh, that's why I don't know how um, the best way to kind of structure this discussion because um, there are different branches and different approaches and different styles of cores and, you know, they're all tackling a particular problem. And so, you know, the piston core is being applied when you're trying to get, you know, really long lake sediment cores, whereas uh, the open barrel core is more when you're real... Um, the gravity cores, you know, the principal challenge there is having a good sediment water interface so that you know that you've captured the most recent period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in like previous people that are not myself, um, uh, digging through the literature to find like various uh, like early um, evidence in the literature of uh, coring equipment, um, a... Uh, a, I guess it's a paper, a white paper, a volume, I'm not sure what it is, by Forslev from 1949 um, for the um, uh, Ameri- the American, like, I don't know, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, it's like a subsurface, uh, basically a book describing the uh, subsurface exploration and sampling of soils for civil engineering purposes. That'd be like one, you know, of the early guides of, how to get stuff from the bottom of lakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about this list and the people who were taking the cores and they weren't, you know, they weren't making these designs in order to sell them commercially. They were making them to solve a specific problem they had. And they're very much the people who did them where they were making these uh, devices are linked to the kinds of lakes that are located in that area. So you know, you want to take cores from really uh, dense, 
slow sedimentation African rift, la rift lakes, you're going to need to, you know, push through some really heavy, uh, thick sediments. So you need some sort of piston coring device. If you want to capture the real, very detailed laminations of a, a, a varved record, you, you know, that's where those freeze cores came to be. So you can get very accurate, um, very accurate, uh, sectioning. You want to capture the surface sediment, then, you know, you need to have a gravity type, of course. So they're all very much linked to what it is the person was trying to do and what their research ended up uh, being all about. So I think that's an yeah. interesting connection. Yeah. And um, for context, we were, you know, we were talking earlier about Winifred Pennington, like, you know, the nature paper, it was a steel tube hammered into the sediments. That's it. You know. And I've done so, that. Uh, it works. <laughs> it's hard to get back out of the tube, though. <laughs> and well, that, you know, as they say, that, that, that is the trick. And uh, so you have, um, I guess, simultaneously the development of cores and extruding equipment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the big, thick, uh, long sediment cores are quite easy. They, they come out quite nice. Uh, but if you have a really watery KB core or gravity core, like John Glue's cores, you need something equally complicated to, uh, to get that sediment back out. And so, um, I guess putting some timelines, so we go from a steel tube in 1941 to a very detailed soil sampling Army Corps of Engineers volume in 1949. Um, uh, Shapiro um, revealed the core freezer, a new sampler for lake sediments in 1958. So I guess that would be the beginning of freeze coring. Um, Which is in the States. Uh, yeah. yeah. In, from um, the LRC group. Yep. Um, have the, in, associated with the Freshwater Biology Association, um, Lake Windermere area, you have the Macrith core, which is one that I've heard referred to many times, but I have never actually seen one of these. It's a pneumatic mud core, and I don't even really know what that means. All, all I'm aware of is that it uh, goes down under its own weight, and then after some time period kind of, I think like a freeze core in some ways, except after some time period, it raises itself. So it doesn't, um, come up. You don't pull it back up on a rope. It has a pneumatic, obviously there's an air component of it that brings it back up to the surface. Uh, but beyond that, I don't, I've never seen, I think I've seen a picture of one, but never obviously seen a real one. Um, the kayak brinkers core, um, KB core, you know, uh, often, I'm not sure in these days necessarily see written down referred to a huge amount, but definitely heard referred to as like a KB type core, um, that dates back to 1969. Which is a gravity core in that you lower it into the water. Uh, it's for the surface sediments. It's spring closing. If I recall the, uh, diagrams from, uh, the glue at all, uh, textbook chapter. Um, but it, it, so it, it's not unlike some of the other gravity cores, but it's not messenger driven. And it's, I think for men, meant for a little bit more consolidated sediments. And whereas the, uh, the glue, the messenger driven glue core that we're both intimately familiar with having used jillions of times at this point. Um, so it goes back, dates back to 1988. And so at that point, you know, it's not a case of uh, the equipment becoming recognizable. It's that's when you know the equipment that uh, we are still using today was, in many ways, you know, put to paper. Yep, and many of those um, many of those individuals who have uh, had a big role to play in the more recent ones, so like Dan Livingston and John Glue, and uh, I've oh, I, I feel terrible. What's the name of the fellow at UETech? Uh, Richard Niederreiter or something like that, I believe. And apologies if I've forgotten the name. Have won uh, the Paleolimnology Service Awards more recently for their contributions to. Well, uh, Dan Livingston uh, won the Lifetime Achievement Award, but have have been uh, recognized by the uh, Paleolimnology Association for their their contributions uh, related to the thing we just said. You know, you got to take a core. And I think we're getting close to a good ending point for today, because at this point we're now very recognizably, you know, in paleolimnology. 
um, as we would know it today. Um, we have core, gone through the list of cores on some level to what we're using today in many ways. Um, but the next real development, I think, was you know when you do not have VARs to count, um, the application of dates to the sediments, which we've covered in a previous episode as, as well, um, but uh, basically took paleoanalogy to another level. And, you know, it's like you're not talking about succession in general terms. Once radioisotopes and other means of dating became involved, then all of a sudden you're putting dates to changes, and it's a real game changer in terms of the development of paleo. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, we have talked about it from a theory perspective. Maybe we'll mention a few of those names in the next, uh, as a way to start off the next segment, but absolutely that. And then moving on from there is uh, how to calibrate some of these things. So the people who had a real big role to play in the the uh, more quantitative part, uh, which leads directly into the modern applications of paleolimnology. So I think that'll be part three. So stay tuned for that. On this on this journey uh, into the reconstruction of the history of reconstructing the history of lakes. That's right. There and back again we go. All right. So before we uh, uh, wrap up today, maybe we should check the mailbag. Let's do that. We got mail. You have mail. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. When, um, when you opened that, did you actually believe it or you think it was a spin? <laughs> <laughs> because it's never happened before. This is the first time anyone has ever emailed us. But uh, um, uh, no, it, it was very clearly a real email from a real person. Fantastic. And uh, um, we had a, a Leighton write in who's um, starting a, a PhD and had a general question about, you know, starting to look under the, the microscope and being able to separate the remains. So I guess uh, she's looking at a cladocerans, uh, a, a cladocerans project. But, you know, at what point are you able to uh, separate the well-preserved remains and distinguish them from clumps of other stuff that may or may not be of interest? Um, it's a real good is it just question. a compass sediment or a, a biological remain or something? And unfortunately... I don't think there's a magic answer to that question. Uh, um, part of it is just time and experience and seeing the remains that you're interested in uh, from all sorts of ang- angles. Um, you know, like the pictures in the various guides are always a best case scenario. Um, and uh, it's lying completely flat. It's not torn. Um, doesn't have crud obscuring key features. Um and so you just basically got to rack up some microscope time. But I think the other one um, that is less obvious is develop at least a cursory knowledge of the other types of remains that you may be likely to uh, identify or uh, come across uh, in your samples. So if you're looking at cadastrons, um, you're you know trying to separate out chitinized remains. So get at least some idea of what other kind of chitinous stuff is out there. So become somewhat familiar with what a chronomid head capsule looks like, cowbird mandibles, a couple things like that. But that's really, there's no special sauce, I'm afraid. No, you just, you develop a bit of a, a, you know, intuitive sense like that. I don't think that's, that's not a diatom. No, even if it's obscured and broken and, you know, no, that looks a little bit more like X. Yeah. If you know what X might be and you can work through that, then it's a lot easier to say, oh, that's that's a broken bit of something else, uh, not what it is you're actually looking for. Because in the end, you know, if, it's cool to know what the things are, but if it's not a clodocerin, then uh, you're not, you know, you're going to pass by and, and move on to something else. Yeah. But thank you very much for the question. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, we were know. downright excited about it. We have listeners. <laughs> that's right. There's people out there. <laughs> that we don't know personally. That's right. Yeah, that's even more important. <laughs> so thanks for listening. Yeah, absolutely. There should be a prize for the first paleoluminology. Uh, our first core idea pre- uh, question. On these t-shirts. Yeah. That have been kicking around for a while. If you have interest in a core ideas t-shirt, let us know. Yep. You, if, dear listeners, all 16 or 20 of you out there. 
Uh, if you're interested in merch, let us know. We're considering it just for personal use entirely, not to actually uh, distribute. But uh, we could easily, you know, make a little bit bigger of an order if that's something you'd be interested in. All right. Um, and um, so we've got some of the mailbag. I don't think we've been particularly active, despite our episode about uh, discussion about being more active on Twitter. We have not been more active on Twitter. It's been a busy um, time of year, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> we'll it's, get there. it's been a very, very chaotic couple of weeks. Um, but if you'd like to get in touch with us, Twitter is um, one of the best ways. Um, yes, we can email is great for longer form questions, but if you just want to throw us a quick uh, line, uh, we can be reached at Core Ideas Paleo. And our website is coreideas.ajazeroski.ca. Um, but just look up on Twitter and you'll find the link to the website very easily. And that's got the, you know, all our past episodes, show notes on all but the most recent episodes, because I'm a little bit behind on writing these things up. Um, but uh, yeah. Sounds good. I think Sounds that's good. it. Until next so, time. Until next time. And we'll continue our history of uh, paleomnology getting closer and closer to um, periods of time that we actually have a recollection. <laughs> uh, I, I would say we there's a good chance we will conclude our journey through paleolimnology in part three, the next one. Uh, you never know if we find, you know, that we have too much to talk about, we could always split it again. But I think a uh, 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 trio of episodes sounds pretty good. Good little trilogy. Uh, if you have any suggestions or things we've missed or whatever, um, let us know. If you're offended by any of our omissions, exactly. let us know. We, we enjoy all mail, including hate mail. Yep. Um, and until next time, thank you for listening. And we'll catch you again on Core Ideas. That's it. Take care. Take care.